about to take you on a long, strange trip. I'm your guest host, Tim Lynch. Joining me on this journey is founder and host Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. This podcast is a recap and discussion of each of the six acts of the documentary, The Long Strange Trip, The Untold Story of the Grateful Dead. Over the next six weeks, we will be hosting roundtable discussions and interviews with special guests featured in the Long Strange Trip film. We'll talk with Grateful Dead scholars and thought leaders, but also with the uneducated, those who are learning about the Grateful Dead through the Long Strange Trip for the first time. The Long Strange Trip, the untold story of the Grateful Dead, is an Amazon Studios film. It was directed by Amir Barlev, and the executive producer is Martin Scorsese. Check out IMDb for the full list of producers, which includes Justin Kreutzman, son of Grateful Dead drummer Bill Kreutzman. Hey, hey, Tim, can I mention yeah. something here that I want to sure. we want to warn everyone that uh, if you've uh, this is Peter here. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us as part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. And I'm going to interject because we are going to discuss everything in Long Strange Trip up through Act One in part one of this podcast. So I highly suggest that you pause this. Go to Amazon Prime now, watch Act 1 of Long Strange Trip, come back here and join us for this discussion. And then in the second part of this episode, we'll be speaking with our very special guest, Professor Rebecca Adams, and interviewing her and digging deep and talking about uh, the entire uh, four-hour documentary. Christian, just saw Dead & Company on Sunday, right? I just want to let the folks know that uh, you're actually a very recent uh, Dead attendee as we start this podcast. If my memory serves me correctly, yes, I did see them Sunday <laughs> night. <laughs> I remember most of it. <laughs> Before we introduce everyone, let's just say, uh, Tim, you had a chance to watch the whole thing or see the documentary yet? I saw the whole thing in the theater, loved it, made me proud to be a deadhead once again. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and how about you, Christian? Where, where did you have a chance to see it? Well, I've actually got to see it twice now. Uh, I first uh, got a uh, special uh, preview uh, from Amazon themselves, of which then I got to sit down with Amir Barlev and interview him. And, uh, and then I uh, watched it uh, just uh, yesterday. Yeah, I had a chance to see it at the San Francisco uh, Film Fest and had premiered at Sundance this year. It was at South by Southwest and everywhere that it showed, people raved about it, whether they were deadheads or not. And as part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, we had the extreme privilege to sit down with director Amir Barlev and interview him. 
And that's why we're actually now doing this podcast, because after that interview and after watching it, I think a lot of us agreed that this may be one of the best rock and roll documentaries about the penultimate American rock and roll band. And the fact that this story had never been told yet, uh, well, actually, because it's still going on, that was very surprising. So we took the inspiration and we brought Tim Lynch, who is the host of uh, KPFA's Dead to the World. We want to thank him for coming on and hosting this. And we're going to do this every week with a bunch of special guests. And we're going to break down each act. And uh, Tim, why don't you take it away and introduce this week's guest for us? Well, this week, joining us to discuss Act One, we are honored and privileged to have someone who fits right into what the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is about. Digging into rock history, a Grateful Dead subculture, specifically a deadhead academic and scholar, Professor Rebecca Adams, as well as our uneducated guest, Tom Rizzuto. <laughs> He's a professor at Malloy College in New York, where he teaches guitar, world music, and the history of rock and roll. Welcome to each of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Please, uh, Rebecca, tell us something about yourself and your relationship to the dead and why you're here doing this. Well, um, I saw my first dead show in the fall of 1970. I actually turned 18 at the show. And uh, I went with uh, the first band I ever heard to uh, play the dead, the Outer Space Blues Band, which is having its 50th anniversary this year. Wow. Uh, but subsequent to that, um, I went to a bunch of shows um, as a fan. Uh, and uh, pretty much stopped going in about 1978 uh, when I was in the midst of graduate school. And then I picked up again uh, when the dead uh, played at Hampton, the Box of Rain show in Hampton. Uh, I happened to be there with my husband uh, and his boss. Uh, and that's where I got the idea um, to study the fans. So right. I've been studying them ever since, pretty much. So like Jane Goodall, I've been one of the uh, creatures you've been uh, field studying. <laughs> Is that what you're telling me? Well, pretty much, yes. Barlow once called me the Margaret Mead of tie-dye. Yes, Margaret Mead, Monica yes. I like. <laughs> so, so let's see. Teacher Tom, we know Teacher Tom because Teacher Tom has done segments on Rock Talk. Teacher Tom is a has done TED Talks, and we are honored and privileged to have him as our first undeducated. Thank Tom. you. I am quite undeducated. I love that term, by the way. Well, well, why, why, why so? Wait, wait, but here's I'm confused, Tom. You you teach rock and roll, but you don't anything yeah, how about do you the greatest the, American yes. rock and roll band ever. That I will make that argument again and again through these podcasts. Yes, I have a glaring um, tie dye colored black hole in my in my <laughs> rock knowledge. <laughs> okay, so right on Kate Ashbury in the 1960s. Well, I'll tell you something. You know, my history with the Grateful Dead is interesting because I uh, I initially formed. And um, I want to be careful here because I, I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this by saying that I was I was young and and ignorant. I initially formed a prejudice against them when I was in high school. Um, I was going through a strong punk rock phase, and uh, there was nothing I wanted to listen to less than jam bands like Fish and um, and uh, uh, there was a band called Mo that always spelled their name with a period. And I actually <laughs> have some, yeah. I, I actually have come to appreciate them since then, but. I kind of viewed the Grateful Dead as kind of the um, antithesis to your uh, punk rock scene. 
Exactly. I kind of I kind of saw them as the as the seed that gave root to all of those kind of bands. Um, <laughs> Rightly so. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And uh, and even as I came to appreciate I, I'm still not a big jam band fan, you know, but as I came to appreciate that music for what it was, for whatever reason, I just never came back around and and studied the Grateful Dead the way I should have. I know about their role in history in terms of the uh, the kind of social political um, role that they played, but I never really got around to listening to all that much of their music. I I liked the second album. I think like most um, like most casual observers of the Grateful Dead, I think that Working Man's Dead is probably mm. um, the one that I'm most familiar with. But I I am uh, as I said on on Facebook to to Peter, uh, my my knowledge of the Grateful Dead. Uh, can fit on the back of a Ben and Jerry's ice cream pint because that's where it came from. Well, uh, what are your what are your top uh, top thoughts and feelings about Act One now that you've gotten a little bit of uh, education? Well, I'll tell you exactly the first one, and it came right at the beginning of it, and it made me feel uh, very comfortable. Um, it's a quote by Dennis McNally uh, that I wrote down half of it. I think it says, "It's a real challenge if you're not already a deadhead to love the Grateful Dead." because there's so much distraction. And that really struck me because that's, you know, the, the, the idea of so much distraction, that's why I never really got into them in the first place. So seeing that at the beginning of the movie uh, really helped me to relax and settle in because it, to me, it was an acknowledgement that I maybe wasn't alone in, uh, informing my initial, informing my initial, uh, uned undeducated opinions on the band. You know, and if I could add something, Tom, to what you, what you just said, uh, you know, Phil has a response to that, which is it caused you to really have to listen. Uh, yeah. They had to listen. The audience really has to listen to kind of understand what's going on. And I know what you mean. I remember my first dead show and I walked out going, this is ridiculous. It made yeah. no sense to me at all. Yeah, I, I think that that is probably I mean, I had never I've never seen um, any of the, the members of the Grateful Dead play live. But uh, I think that's probably how I would have felt, you know. Um, I, I've always been, uh, interested in, um, in different genres of music, but for some reason, this one escaped me and having heard that, I, having heard that acknowledgement that this was going to be, and I kind of felt that this, that the, the tone of this documentary was one of, um, one of neutrality it was almost it was certainly pro grateful dead but it it took a it took kind of a third person objective view of it which i really really appreciated from a from a film goer standpoint and from a musicologist standpoint and rebecca what struck you about act one the most do you have top three moments or some general thoughts and feelings yes um I was very struck with Jerry's fascination with Frankenstein, uh, <laughs> given that there's so much uh, life and death contrast in the music and and in the subculture. You know, that's a topic that's often discussed. Um, I was very glad to see that the Dead Freaks Unite call was mentioned. I remember responding to that album cover myself and uh, receiving the postcards and I think there was a free issue of um, uh, Rolling Stone I think it was the first issue of Rolling Stone came when you wrote in 
your address. Um, and uh, I was also struck by the discussion of the group mind, which of course is something the Deadheads still believe in and uh, that other bands try to emulate. Those were my top three uh, points from the beginning. I, I think you just hit on something there where Phil says, you know, at one point he can, you know, he's getting, picking up telepathic messages. Uh, and that's at a point, obviously, when they start getting into the acid tests uh, and things shift for them, uh, that group mind think. Um, we, 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 it's interesting because this whole episode is basically about how the band is put together, you know, and commits itself to that change. And the theme, the opening theme of Frankenstein and Jerry is, you know, it tells you right off the bat that this is going to be a lot about Jerry. And so, uh, you know, that came through a lot for me in, in this right away when, when it started was that I felt like we're going to get the Jerry story much more than a lot of the other things we're going to get throughout this journey. Well, I kind of felt that the, the Frankenstein uh, metaphor not only talked a little bit about Jerry and, you know, obviously uh, the death of his dad uh, the year before when he saw actually Abbott and Costello uh, versus Frankenstein, but uh, the band itself, the movement, uh, the fact that it uh, is this amalgamation of a lot of different things, which is, you know, the point of, uh, you know, bringing this dead creature back to life. Um, you know, I, I thought it was a great metaphor to start the movie with. And it, it, they didn't make as much of the Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein connection as I uh, would have expected them to. It, the Frankenstein motif makes perfect sense, and it's a, it's a great motif to come, keep coming back to. And, and as Jerry said, informed him a lot. But it's Abbott and Costello. Yes, the Fran funny, so The yes. fun. Yeah, and that's uh, <laughs> something that Garcia kept talking about a lot in, in part one was it has to be fun. I need it to be fun. Um, and so they might have made more of the Abbott and Costello portion of the Frankenstein, but the Frankenstein motif definitely works well as a as a metaphor for what's going on. And before we get to Tom and one of your and your next uh, your next thing you picked up, Tom, I want to make a point there. We just said about the fun and, and why Jerry gets that. On my second watching this, I picked up something that that really still resonates with me. So there, Jerry's we we meet we we meet Barbara, um, his his girlfriend, Barb Bridget Mayer, who he has this relationship with early on and there's a 30-year span between them. So there's a lot of bookends that are going to occur throughout this documentary. She is part of one of these bookends, and without giving away too much, spoiling the rest of the documentaries. But what's interesting is she says something. When Jerry practices bluegrass and he gets really technical and he's into it, she gets bored. She he like loses the and she like leaves him because she doesn't like the kind of music and then he doesn't like who he's become because of the kind of music he's playing becomes sterile and technical and like you hear this whole flip and reverse where he now has to do everything that's fun and spontaneous and can't do anything that becomes a crutch or device and it's almost this backlash to a broken heart. Well, and that's why he got into rock and roll then with still taking the bluegrass conversation element, but without the rigidity of the bluegrass form. Uh, I thought that was an important um, an important part of how bluegrass informed them, even though they came from such different directions. I thought one of the stars of the first act, too, was LSD. Uh, they made a great big 
point about the impact of LSD on the scene and on the band. Tom, what's, what's your think about LSD and the impact on the dead, <laughs> since you're the one to, you know, well, let's you know, hear it. Excellent segue, because my second point um, was that I was, first of all, I was fascinated because I had never known that Jerry Garcia came up playing bluegrass and particularly not the banjo, uh, because I did not know you could be proficient on the banjo while missing a finger. Right. Um Right. Which I, I wish there were more. There was more film of him playing, uh, where I could see his his right hand better, and just see what exactly he was doing. Um, as for the as for the LSD, uh, you know what what really what really struck me about that, and I'm not I'm not very knowledgeable on LSD, but I I, w I will say that I have witnessed people on it, and uh, it, the, the way that the way that I have seen people act when uh, when they are on LSD reminds me of Grateful Dead music. So maybe, maybe I think there's some intention in that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's it's a chicken or the egg situation. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I would. I once I heard about the about the bluegrass thing though, I started listening for for bluegrass inflection in some of the music, and you can you can pick up a little bit of it. Uh, what I was really struck by, though, uh, on the topic of Jerry Garcia's tireless pursuit of fun above all else, um, once they introduced, uh, was it in the first episode that the drummers were introduced? The sure. Two? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Kreutzmann and Mickey Hart. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, first they, Bill, then Mickey. Right. They they themselves brought up the concept of polyrhythms, playing a, a four four rhythm against a six eight rhythm, which I had heard. That uh, the uh, he was talking about the other one, by the way, that that song specifically. Yeah, uh, I had heard that the Grateful Dead had experimented with polyrhythm. So afterwards, I went back and I listened to it, and the first thing I thought as a musician was, there is no way they are just jamming here. To do this this effectively took tons and tons and tons of practice, mm -hmm. which uh, I believe I was vindicated when I heard the line in the movie that they that they played six nights a week, five sets a night. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of practice. Yeah. Um, similar to the Beatles in Hamburg. Exactly. Very, very similar to the Beatles in Hamburg. Um, that's that's the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 mm -hmm. hours right, right. there. Um, I just thought that was interesting from a standpoint of a musician watching other musicians, uh, how they made that work and just how much practice that must have took. Uh, my, my first impression is that that could not have been that much fun for very long. But I, 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 I saw that much respect from me from a musical standpoint yeah i, I just wanted to add, um, add that uh, uh in the beginning when sam cutler was making some rather disparaging comments about the band's work ethic and their focus on fun i was a little bit irritated by it because i knew they practiced their tails off and later he in another episode he did say they worked really hard so um, I, you know, I, I was glad that he recognized that even though they were having fun and perhaps causing him a bit of a challenge, that they really were serious musicians who were focusing on their craft. Oh, with, without doubt, uh, musically. I mean, you know, another thing that comes out in the episode is the the uh, the, the various. 
uh, disciplines that each one came from, um, you know, Phil uh, from avant-garde music, uh, uh, Pigpen uh, and uh, Bill from the, the blues uh, world, uh, Jerry, obviously, from uh, bluegrass and, and jazz. And there is that jazz element to it. And I think, you know, as a musician, and Tom, you'll probably agree with me, uh, you know, they're, they're, when you get together with a group of people and you, you get to know them, you know, musically, you can literally have conversations. So then to add the LSD on top of it, uh, where, you know, you, there is some form of at least mental enhancement, whether it's real or not, we can discuss. But, you know, there is this group think uh, uh, within the musicians themselves. And I think that that becomes very apparent in their music as they grow. And it wasn't just the musicians involved in that. I think in this first act, Phil Lesh says he remembers distinctly at the acid test, for example, getting messages, telepathic messages, not just from the other musicians, but from the audience, from the from the crowd itself. And so it's it's early on that this idea of the audience being part of the music uh, uh, develops. Yeah, and that you know, that, if you're familiar with Ken Kesey and uh, you know uh, the Merry Pranksters, Electric Kool Aid Acid Test, Talent Wolf's uh, book, um, you know that that was their thing was to kind of you know spread this out uh, uh, to to all of humanity if they could possibly get to it. Part of that, uh, the acid test, which for me I think the most impactful, I would say, you know, if I had the top moment from this entire Act One would be. Something I think about often as somebody who went to art school and thinks I know what it means to be an artist a little bit uh, is just doing the art, just doing the work, right? What I loved is the whole metaphor for the Watts Tower when they leave, they're leaving the Watts acid test and they're still flying pretty high. And he makes this you know statement when they want to move these artist towers and they're so permanent after his death and he's worked his whole life to create these structures that can't be physically moved and then they become this touristy destination kind of uh he doesn't want that he he wants to he wants everything to be about the moment uh and the process and jerry was the ultimate artist just making that analogy and we had a lot of respect for him out of that if i could jump in here uh this sort of my my third point that i had is that i was struck and if I had the opportunity to talk to Jerry Garcia, I, I would want to discuss with him uh, just how influenced by literature The Grateful Dead was. Not only, I think, I idealistically, I think that the, you can draw direct parallels between the way that The Grateful Dead approached music and touring with Jack Kerouac, uh, especially, and the way he approached writing. Uh, but I think that musically, you can hear that kind of uh, it's almost stream of consciousness guitar playing the way that I, I picked up how Jerry G Garcia was playing. And I think that as a musician, the thing that struck me most was that I really came to appreciate Jerry Garcia as a guitar player in a way that I had not gotten a chance to before. Because if you listen to, you know, the quote unquote pop hits like Uncle John's Bay or whatever, you know, you don't really hear you hear nice guitar playing, but you don't hear really inventive guitar playing. And as I as I delved deeper into it in the documentary itself and then in my own private listening, I really heard some really interesting stuff, some very blues infected stuff, some very uh, some very jazz affected stuff. And I could start to pick up a little bit of bluegrass in there, too. It was very interesting for, for me from a music standpoint. Yeah, I thought when Garcia made that point about how... Um 
first off, that Kerouac had been so influential in his life, and, and Bridget Meyer said the same thing, uh, and the, the whole scene. But well, he, he explicitly made the point that he liked to approach his music the same way that Kerouac approached writing on the road, which was an endless piece of paper. It just kept going on. He had the newspaper roll. He didn't have individual sheets of paper in his typewriter. Um, and that, that sort of reminds me a little bit of, of um, some of the longer explorations that they did. They were not bound by the sheet of paper, shall we say. Or by the length of a song that could be played on the radio and sold as a hit single. I think that point was made too when they were discussing experience. You know, I think you can make the argument that uh, whether it was intentional or not, uh, what the Grateful Dead was doing musically was in a very real way, they were taking the original building blocks that made rock and roll, like R&B and bluegrass and, you know, American roots music, folk, blues, and reconstructing them in a different way that was still rock and roll, but a more uh, a new way of putting together the, the pieces, let's just say. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, I want to give props to all the people involved in selecting the music for this thing. Um, I yes. don't always listen to the late 60s um, Grateful Dead. I, I tend more towards um, more years, for example, that I was there and the recording quality on a lot of early 60s, late 60s recordings that I've been exposed to hasn't been that great. But the late 60s material that is in this act one is just superb. And you can really, really hear uh, the inventiveness, the quality, the uh, just the sublime nature of the music. That's a great point, Tim. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But yes, uh, I, too, uh, have not... Uh, you know, spent a lot of time in the early years and prefer the, the later years when I, when I was going to shows too. But, uh, but you're right. Uh, the, uh, the music sounded fantastic, uh, uh, on the cuts that they chose from the early yeah, years. What Dick Ludvalli used to call primal dead. And you can really hear the primal nature of this music in the, in this extreme quality recordings. Mm -hmm. you, you should pick up the soundtrack on Amazon. They have an exclusive because this is an Amazon Prime and Amazon Films. Dark Star, uh, The Ripple, Cold Rain and Snow, Caution. There's lots of different ones. Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion, Cosmic Charlie, other one. Lots of great versions of those songs for sure on this uh, soundtrack. We're here. We're not critics. We're not here to be critical of this. This was a 15-year piece of uh, art, a documentary made uh, with the love and care by so many people. And we with so many different people's visions and perspectives and so many people involved and it's still going on to this day. You know, one thing that, you know, we can talk about a little bit here before we uh, we head on to the second part of the show. Is there anything that we feel that may have been left out in this first part or something else that uh, you were expecting to see maybe? Can I bring something up? Just sure. I, I think it's a big miss, and I, I'd like to get uh, both uh, Tom and Rebecca's uh, response on this. And that is, we talked a lot about the music, and Tom went into uh, the depth of you know these various forms of Americana music that the Dead specialized in, and then created a new amalgamation. In. But how about Robert Hunter and the lyrics that accompany this music? I'll speak on the lyrics a little bit. I think that, uh, first of all, I did not know that there was uh, a lyricist uh, other than Jerry oh, Garcia. Oh, yeah, he's a lyricist he is. Yeah, I just assumed that he wrote the songs because he was singing them. 
uh, and I never really looked that far into it. Uh, I should I should mention John Perry Barlow too. So, but uh, but Robert that comes later is, though. Yeah, is is the, the 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 key here? I think that the lyrics, um, particularly the ones that I'll I'll focus on the ones that I heard in the first installment, uh, the first chapter. I think that they do harken back to an, a kind of American folk music writing. Uh, I would be interested in learning more about uh, this person's own personal background. You know, I think the first the first chapter focused a lot on Jerry Garcia, and rightfully so, probably. But I would like to hear about where he came from, what what his experience was. You know, everybody has their own musical interpretation of America. And sometimes people don't live in their own interpretation of America. You know, sometimes uh, somebody from San Francisco writes music that fits perfectly in in the Mississippi River Delta. You know, you're thinking about Creedence Clearwater Revival there, my friend. I believe so. Yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. Uh, so I would be interested in learning more about that. And that's some research I might want to do on my own. The, um, you reminded me that one point I think that was made both with images, McNally makes it explicitly with words, but then it was backed up very much with images when he says they're the most American of bands. And it's uh, brought up not only through the music, but images of the dead with American flags and with uh, Uncle Sam hats and um, the Americana of it all was uh, really brought home. Well, and I think that... Um I think that in other places, the band talked about how deadheads were living a life, an American life. You know, I think Jerry once said something like, you can't hop on a freight anymore, but you can follow the Grateful Dead around. Right. The whole idea of exploring the frontier, maybe not in terms of territory, but in terms of mind expansion. Uh, there are all sorts of references to the adventure. Oh, that made a lot. Uh, that made a big impression on me. I completely agree with you, Rebecca. Hey, if I could bring up one thing that I think was surprised me, and I, I don't mean to be a critic because I think the film is amazing and you can't do in a film what you can do in some of the history books that have been written. But I was a little bit surprised to hear so much about the early Grateful Dead, about the Merry Pranksters, about Acid, but not her, hear the name Owsley Stanley mentioned in part one. And Owsley's commitment to sound quality and his investment in the band and in trying to make sure they could be heard at the highest possible level. Uh, so the um, I was surprised not to hear more about that. We will hear more about Owsley later, though, so that's another I believe story. so. I believe so. Yeah, I guess I, I feel obligated to make one point, which is that there were women involved in supporting the band. Um, I once heard Mountain Girl talk about it at length at the Unbroken Chain Conference at the University of Massachusetts. And uh, it, I, it, I'm not surprised that that wasn't uh, addressed specifically in the first episode, but there, you know, there were a, a lot of women who were involved along the way. And um, since I've seen most of the video now, uh, I was a little bit surprised that some of them didn't come up. 
Can, if I can make a point, just speaking to that directly for all of our listeners out there, anyone who watched the movie, to end to your point, uh, that uh, yes, that is an important point to make. I think that um, <clears throat> I was speaking today with Rosie McGee, whose works in the in the in the, she's going to be a special guest on our show. Her work is in Long Strange Trip. She was a photographer and around the dead for quite some time. We are going to have Rosie on. We are going to have Susanna Millman on, another photographer. I've reached out to Donna Jean. We reached out to Trixie. We want to include as many perspectives and opinions that, you know, surround all of that. That's important here when we're doing this show. Glad that you brought that up. And I hope that uh, we do a good job on this podcast of bringing a lot of those uh, people and those points of perspective to light while we're discussing it. I appreciate that. I've heard both Susanna and Rosie speak before, and I know they'll do an excellent job. Um, someone should talk to Candace Brightman, though. Someone should talk to Candace. Yeah, and um, um, Betty Cantor. Betty Cantor Jackson. And Betty, Betty, Betty Cantor. Played a huge yes. role. Yeah, she's very important. Yeah. And it, Eileen Law. <laughs> the list goes on. If you're listening, if any of those, if any of those, uh, those fine women out there are listening to this podcast and would like to join us, please reach out and find us on Twitter. Reach out to Professor Rebecca Adams, Tim Lynch, anyone you know. We would love to have you on and uh, on as a guest as well. So, Tim, anything else you want to get to this week? No, I just like I said at the beginning. I uh, while I could, you know, say, oh, I wish this or I wish that. I think that in general, the Act One was just wonderful. Um, it was a great insight to the dead, and I can't wait to talk about Act 2 with you. The Act 1, again, it's called It's Alive, and Act 2 is called This Is Now, and in Part 2, we'll just tell you a little bit what happens. It's the Grateful Dead are going to sabotage their chances of becoming superstars and figure out how to make it work on their own terms. Uh, we want We were going to say goodbye to our undeducated guest, uh, Tom, but before, Tom, you go, I think... Why don't you give us a final thought on the Grateful Dead now and where your future lies with the Grateful Dead as a, both a music fan and a music uh, historian? Sure. I am uh, newly fascinated with Grateful Dead. I think that uh, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to watching the rest of the documentary, but uh, in researching more on my own as well, I, I love the take of how they fit into the framework of American music and the history of America at this time in general. You know, I think that The Grateful Dead has gone, for me, uh, from one box that I had, which was music that I was just generally, for whatever reason, un uninterested in. I'm now moving them to a kind of middle area box of music that I want to appreciate, but I might need more time with. Uh, and in that box is now the Grateful Dead and they join, you know, Frank Zappa and Rachmaninoff and all sorts of people. Um, I, I'm looking forward to expanding my knowledge of the Grateful Dead. I'm looking forward to listening to more. I am now newly interested, as I said. And I had one final thought as I was watching this and reflecting on the history of the music that came out of uh, that area of the world, uh, particularly, you know, Northern California. Uh, and thinking about just how much music came out of that place at that time, and this Grateful Dead was certainly a big part of that. 
you know, when we think of the American experience and when we think of the great American adventure, uh, we often think of going west. You start in the east and you move west to find new frontiers. And once you reach California, you start running out of west. And maybe the next frontier is the frontier of the mind and where you can take it with the arts and stuff like that. And maybe that's what the Grateful Dead represents to me right now. Ah, great point. Huh? The final frontier. Could I say one thing in response to Tom? Yes, please. Before he disappears, um, you're moving from uh, undead, what did you call it? Undeducated. Yeah. You're moving from undeducated slowly to dedicated. <laughs> and I can recommend some musicologists and ethnomusicologists who can take you a little bit further along that path. I would love uh, that. There's a very large group meets at the Southwest Popular Culture Association uh, meetings every year, and they are dominated by musicologists and ethnomusicologists. Wonderful. I, I, that, that's great. Thank you. Hey, before we go, just because uh, this subject uh, came up several times throughout uh, this particular episode uh, on the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, Episode 9, The Medium, The Message, The Music, uh, is basically the history of LSD and how it influenced uh, the mid-60s music. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, guess who appears in that episode? <laughs> None other than Tim Lynch, who plays Jay Stevens. And also me, by the way, guys. Oh, and Tom. That's Rizzuto. right. I think Tom is in it too. <laughs> so it's all in the family here. We're keeping it in the family. This yeah. was meant to be. <laughs> we're gonna hey, we're gonna say goodbye to Tom and we're gonna thank our guest host who's gonna every week come in and talk about each act, uh, Tim Lynch. And we're gonna let uh, Christian finish out the show here with an interview talking one on one with Rebecca. So diggers, thanks for listening and joining. You can find all of our shows, the Rock and Roll Librarian, Rock Talk, Deeper Digs and Rock, and the Rock and Roll Archaeology project on itunes and with that christian let's find out more about this study of well you and i the deadheads All right, it's time to dig a little bit deeper here, and uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time with Dr. Rebecca Adams, sociologist uh, and professor and director of gerontology at UNC at Greensboro. Did I get that right, Rebecca? You did. All right. Now, uh, you've been one of the foremost scholars uh, of and on Grateful Dead fans uh, that are known as deadheads since 1980. You co-authored or co-edited books, including uh, Deadhead Social Science. You ain't going to learn what you don't want to know uh, with uh, Robert Sardilio. Uh, a graduate of UNCG's uh, Sociology MA program, uh, placing friendship in context and adult friendship, as well as many scholarly articles and books, uh, including nine on uh, Grateful Dead fans uh, specifically. Uh, I believe your research includes uh, uh, aging, uh, friendship, uh, and community, uh, music fans, uh, mostly the Grateful Dead community. I get all that. Uh, yeah. We, you know, in the, the first part, we talked a little bit about you uh, deciding to study the culture of the Grateful Dead. But let, let's go a little bit deeper on, on that. Uh, you went to your first show in 1970, um, but it's not until you are uh, after graduate school that you actually decide to make this uh, an academic uh, ambition, correct? 
Uh, that's correct. It, it was after graduate school that I decided to do this research. As a matter of fact, it was after I had tenure. Uh, as a professor. So I had already been out of graduate school for you know, five or six years at the time I started this research. And what made you kind of figure that this was uh, a, a great palette of which to paint your life's work on? Well, my, my reason for studying the culture in the beginning was actually a theoretical one. I was interested in uh, people who became friends and didn't live near each other. And I was actually going to study people who went to uh, professional conferences like book editors and academics and people went to trade shows and things like that. At, at about that time, uh, my husband was invited uh, to go to a Grateful Dead show in Hampton, Virginia, and I was invited to go along uh, with his boss. And uh, I was very surprised to see the Grateful Dead still had a big following. I had stopped going to shows in 1978 uh, after having gone to my first one in 74, uh, and I was fascinated by what I saw. And then on Monday morning after this show uh, on the weekend, uh, one of my students came to me and said that he thought I should study deadheads. He understood my theoretical agenda, <laughs> but they were also people who moved around from place yeah. to place and formed friendships with each other. Long and he thought yeah. that, you know, my other students would be a lot more interested in hearing about deadheads than about professors who went to conferences. And that's where the idea originated. And um, I had a colleague at the time, uh, Paul Lupke, who just recently passed away. Uh, he was teaching a class on social movements, and uh, he had allowed some students to go to the Dead Show um, in return for giving presentations about it. And he invited me to the class to hear them. Those students suggested I bring together all of the people who had been at the show and hear their stories. And at that meeting, some of the students said, boy, we'd like to do independent studies and go on tour and collect data. I and want that I class. Said, <laughs> yes. And so I said yes. And so the following um, uh uh, year I had four independent study students on tour with the dad, and when they um, finished their work, I realized there was a lot more uh, to learn, and I was trying to figure out a way how to be able to afford to do it. And at that point, my department head and the dean of the Division of Continual Learning put their heads together and decided that the university would offer a class on the Grateful Dead uh, and that I would teach it and take a class of students on tour. And I did that in the summer of 1989, and that was really the beginning of my research project. Now, I understand that was a little controversial for its time. Uh, it was very controversial. I was written up in the congressional record, not by name, but by deed, as a symbol of the decline of higher education. Oh, um, my God. Yeah, yeah. Now my university. So you, you, you've, is very been, you've proud been branded. Yeah, you were branded as subversive at the time. Uh, well, popular culture wasn't. Uh, 
really a legitimate form of study at that point. Now, you know, there's a lot of research on popular culture, and people recognize how important it is. But at the time, it was considered trivial. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. How, how has the study of late 20th century grown as a field of study? Well, um, certainly people now recognize that popular culture isn't just fun, Uh, you know, that Mm -hmm. it forms the basis of individual identities, Um, communities are created around it, Um, our values are affected by it, Um, and, you know, now it's a huge field of study. Um, The um, American Popular Culture Association and all of the uh, subsidiary organizations have grown in in size, and so has you know the lexicon. Mm-hmm. So I believe you you've said that there's uh, about a half a million uh, uh, followers or uh, devotees, if you will, uh, to the Grateful Dead uh, in our fair land. Well, actually, half a million is a conservative estimate. Um, Really? I arrived at that estimate uh, in the summer of 1998. Uh, Mm. After Jerry died, the Grateful Dead um, did a series of tours called Further Festivals uh, with the other other ones. And um, at, at the 1998 Further Festival, they did 22 shows, and they collected surveys at each of those shows, and they ended up with 6,020 uh, responses. It's the largest survey ever done of deadheads, the closest thing we have to a census. And by uh, about half of those people uh, said that they uh, – Uh, subscribe to the Almanac, which is the newsletter that was still being sent out to the list that started with Dead Freaks Unite, uh, Call for Action on the album uh, that was mentioned in the first first act of the film. And uh, by knowing that only half the people received the Almanac and knowing how many people were at the shows, I was able to estimate that there were a half million deadheads out there. But keep in mind that the reason it's conservative is a lot of people were boycotting those shows because they were Jerry heads. And without Uh, Jerry, there wasn't the Grateful Dead. And Mm -hmm. so there were a half million deadheads who were willing to go see the band, even though Jerry wasn't in it, and even though they were still in mourning. And so it was probably actually a lot more deadheads than a half a million at that time. Well, that's more than a fan base. Uh, that's that's definitely a movement. Yes. Wow. Yes. So uh, now, uh, how is it? How how is this now? This group of people. Uh, how is it similar or different to maybe movements of the past? Deadheads are different than other fan bases. Um, actually, there are more recent fan bases that resemble the dead, but that's because they've learned from the dead and deadheads. Uh, mm. But at the time that uh, the deadhead community began growing, it was somewhat unique. Um, there, the um, Not only... Um, was it a very long-lasting community, as you know. It still survived. Uh, yeah, it's 50, 50 years Gary on, Garcia. right? 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, it, it was very distributed. It was all over the United States, um, which isn't well, and in foreign countries, too, and that's not surprising because they played in 45 states and 13 foreign countries. So it's not surprising it's spread all over the place. Um, but it was also uh, very long-lasting. Um, they, um, uh, when, when the, And people's involvement was very long-lasting. So it wasn't that people would just go to shows when they were young and then stop going to shows. They would continue doing it, and it, when I, that survey took place in 1998, the average deadhead had already been seeing shows 11 years, and they had traveled on the average over 1,200 miles wow. to see a show, and had mm-hmm. attended an average of 61 concerts. An average. So, Average. An average. Wow. Average. That's amazing. <laughs> so that is so dedication. That is dedication, and exactly how I measure it, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but and then of course um, we're, we're we're going from movement to almost religion here. Right, and that's a nice segue to what I was going to say now because. Deadheads didn't just see this as entertainment, you know, um, or an opportunity to socialize with like-minded people. Oh, it's a spiritual component to it. Exactly. They saw shows as important to their spiritual being. Um, They reported spiritual experiences, including... uh, uh, out-of-body experiences, connecting to a higher power, living through the cycle of, uh, you know, death and rebirth. Um, but the most common thing they reported was inner and outer connectedness, um, self-revelation and unity with others. And in having those experiences, uh, they felt, uh, you know, a higher degree of commitment uh, to the music, and they also felt very connected with each other because there was, of course, stigma associated with um, uh, being devoted being a to head, abandon right. this mm-hmm. way and being a deadhead. You know, mm-hmm. other people would think deadheads were crazy when they uh, were devoted in this way. So, um, you know, many deadheads see these spiritual experiences as inseparable from the music. And and so the band became very important uh, in their lives. Well, it's a it's a very ritual sort of uh, of thing nowadays. And in, in, in fact, I, I had read that the, the American mythologist Joseph Campbell had actually been brought to a show once, and he walked away saying, "Oh, it's a festival of Dionysus. This is exactly the the same that the Greeks would have done, uh, you know, in their in their age." So it's it's not surprising, and and I certainly uh, can understand that, being to the number of shows that I've been to. So uh, kind of you know to take on from episode one that uh, that we've just done, uh, we just finished talking about. Uh, you know, the, the the dead actually starts off as the house band for Ken Kesey's uh, uh, Merry Pranksters and uh, the Acid Tests. Uh, and then out of the 60s and Summer of Love. Uh, and then, you know, then, then, then they and their fan base kind of move beyond that. Um, let's talk a little bit about how it you know, it's like a continuation to the sixties. And and the only way I can explain it is that when I went to my first show in, in about 1987, 
um, I, 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 I immediately felt like I was in a time machine uh, and I had been pushed back to, uh, to the 1960s. Now, uh, it was different, but talk a little bit about how this movement came together after this very short period known as the Summer of Love fell apart. Well, when the band started touring um, widely, you know, especially uh, through the Northeast where they, you know, picked up a lot more fans than they had had, uh, you know, when they were mainly playing on the West Coast in the Bay Area, um, the community began to grow in size. And one of the things that actually fascinated me originally was how Deadheads could feel uh, so much closeness and solidarity, even though by the time I started going to shows again in the 80s, they were playing, you know, to 40, 50,000 people at a time. Oh, yeah. You know, so, yeah. So, so, so well, they hit success con- within the dark and, uh, you know, exploded on the scene finally after 15, 20, almost 20 years. Right. And so as a sociologist, I was fascinated with how could this community form in this huge audience? Like, how could people actually feel close to each other and feel some identity with this huge phenomenon? Mm -hmm. And what I quickly realized is that there were communities within the community Uh and that the foundation was really – Um, these smaller groups that people became involved in and that kind of mediated their involvement in the larger uh, community and actually in some cases either reflected or shaped the way they were involved themselves. And um, the, the way that, you know, the way that they actually discussed in the, um, in, in the, the movie, movie, I think, I yeah, Steve Silberman brings up this uh, mandala that uh, uh, to kind of explain the various groups within the, the fan base. So precisely by letting Deadheads do what they wanted to do at shows, Deadheads found their way into their own little niches. So when people arrived in the parking lot and decided what they were going to do before the show, they would develop these little routines that would lead them into contact with the same people over and over again. They might go vent, you know, go visit the vendors on Shakedown Street, which is what mm-hmm. Dad had called that area of the parking lot. Uh, they might go hear the sound of balloons and go consume nitrous. Um, they might go to a drum circle or whatever. And people had a tendency to do the same thing over and over again in the parking lot at shows, and there for to run into the same people over and over again, and eventually these friendships would form. Um, this happened even uh, more obviously inside the venues themselves. Whatever venue the dead played at, um, the de- deadheads would recreate the map of their community inside of the venue. And, um, uh, you know, um, the one thing that's important to understand about deadheads was they didn't always go to their seats, their assigned seats. 
Um, some of them would go to the same location no matter what venue they were in. So they might always go on Phil's side, which was called the right. Phil Zone, or they might mm-hmm. all always go on Jerry's side, or they might always go behind the soundboard or whatever. And they would see the same people over and over again, no matter what city they were in. Sometimes they had a special place they went in each venue. And sometimes some deadheads just spontaneously chose locations. But there were enough people who went to the same location at every venue that they basically formed neighborhoods by seeing each other. And... um, you know, they would choose these neighborhoods in terms of, you know, their own preferences, where the sound was the best, near the soundboard, near the soundboard, for example, where there was more room to dance, maybe out in the hallways. The spinners. Could they see right. the band, you know, maybe mm, on yeah. the rail? Um, or did they have special comfort needs? Maybe they'd end up, you know, in a wheelchair section or behind a rail. Um, and so what happened as a result of this is that there were neighborhoods within the dead show, that known neighborhoods that deadheads knew about. So, um, and these came about in different ways. Uh, some of the groups were actually organized outside of the shows and intentionally went to the same areas and planned where they were going. Uh, for example, when I first started going to shows in the 80s, there was a group called Netheads who were the people who talked to each other online when the Internet first came out. Rec Music G-Dead was the, the, um, uh, the forum. Um, and they would meet intentionally before the shows and then go, you know, they would decide where they were going to meet inside. Um, there were the war frats who were recovering alcoholics right. and drug addicts who always um, uh, were met by a yellow balloon, usually by the Greenpeace table back in those days, um, behind the stage usually. Um uh, there were some neighborhoods that were prescripted by uh, the venue, such as what what Deadheads called the wheelchair guys, you know, who had to go where their wheelchairs would fit. Yeah. Um, and and then there were these naturally emerging neighborhoods like the rail rats, the people who always wanted to be on the rail, and you could see the same people there all the time, the <laughs> hall dancers. And then out on the West Coast, uh, we didn't have these on the East Coast, but on the we, on the West Coast, I I thought of the people who were between the soundboard and the stage as homesteaders because they would go in early and put out their blankets and develop a password to get into their area and um and you know guard their turf. Um that didn't happen on the east coast. Everyone was kind oh. of moving around. Um, uh-huh. um and then there were these uh neighborhoods that were initially naturally emerging, but later became prescripted, which I, I call institutionalized neighborhoods. Things like the tapers, who, yep. you know, originally they were just all over the place and they became a problem, so the dead gave them their own area. Uh, another example are the deaf heads, uh, you know, dead heads um, mm-hmm. who are deaf. Uh, you know, initially they were just out in the venue um, holding their balloon, balloons so they could hear 
you know, feel the vibrations, um, maybe with a signer, but eventually that got institutionalized and they were given a spot where there was room for a signer. Um, so each of these neighborhoods, and there were many more of them than this, um, brought the same people into contact over and over again, and um, they formed little microcosms of the community where where people had more in common than with each other than they did with deadheads in general. And um, those, those neighborhoods um, and other forms of these communities have continued to survive the band, uh, outlive the band, and uh, they continue to work as cultural glue for this phenomenon. Uh, well, many that, people are still in touch with the people they saw at shows because, you know, they formed these groups. So if you draw a map of a venue and indicate where these groups were organized and gathering uh, at the time I was doing the research in the late 80s, it does indeed look like the mandala that Steve Silberman um, described in the video, in the film. Yeah. And I, I think that's very interesting that, uh, uh, that he, he noted that. Um, and I, I do think that these, this organization was crucial to the feelings of solidarity that Deadheads felt at the time. And I also think it's been crucial to the continuation of the culture and people's continued identification with it. Because without those smaller groups mediating their involvement in the whole, uh, they wouldn't have had as much in common or um, as much inclination to, to continue those relationships. Well, that brings me to another question. Do you think that the movement uh, is growing or has it flatlined? That's an interesting question. Uh, I don't know if in numbers, if it is bigger or smaller. And let me let me tell you why. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure whether the crowd has grown or become smaller. Uh, certainly, some older deadheads have dropped out. Uh, if if uh, we would extrapolate from the survey data uh, that I analyzed for the dead, the people mm -hmm. who responded to that in 1998 would be between 29 and 81 years <laughs> old right now. Um, but certainly, you know, some of the older uh, members of the community have either died or dropped out. But at the same time, uh, there are many deadheads who have never heard Jerry because they were too young, uh, who are, are serious about the music and who identify with the culture as well. And I have no idea how many of those people there are, but I do know um, they're out, out there. I see them all the time at... Uh, concerts of the remaining members of the the dead at dead cover bands at dead inspired bands um, and uh, it's uh, you know my hunch is the culture uh, is continuing to grow 
but I don't actually have hard data on that. It's an uh, an interesting thing to to try to figure out. I mean, we're 22 years on from Jerry's passing, and I think uh, at the moment when that occurred, most people thought that that would pretty much be the end of uh, of this particular subculture. Um, but to your point, no, it it has uh, continued on, and and 20 years is is a, is a long time uh, when the uh, you know the head of the uh, the titular head of the organization uh, is no longer present. Of course, I can think of a religion where that also happens. So you know, let's see what happens in 2,000 years, right? So, so Rebecca, I mean, you were one of the first that kind of uh, started on this uh, popular culture uh, exercise in academia. Uh, you helped pioneer this, and uh, and now it's grown into quite a movement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I actually wasn't the very first. Uh, the first research I know on deadheads was done by Stanley Krippner, who was actually a friend of Mickey Hart's. But he did an experiment at shows uh, trying to demonstrate that people at shows could uh, project ideas across distance and, and uh, that there was a mind connection. Um, and uh, he, he became a very well-known psychologist uh, after that. Uh, and there was also a man named Anthony Pearson who published an article um, before I did and simultaneously with me, there was a woman named Natalie Dollar doing research uh, on deadheads as well. There may have been others. Uh, but since that time, the number of people studying this has grown to be quite large. Um, and uh, we do have a locus of activity uh, in about... Uh, well, it was right after Jerry died, the, what was then called the Southwest Texas Popular Culture Association started having sessions devoted to the Grateful Dead and Deadheads. Uh, a man named Rob Weiner, who was a librarian, uh, originally uh, suggested that they do a panel. He was the uh, popular music area chair and a deadhead, uh, and he got it started. And uh, since that time, um, this group has met every year. Uh, John Barlow was our presenter at the, for the whole conference at our 10th anniversary. Wow. Uh, and we've continued on. Um, lots of members of the band's family have come. Um, Alan Trist was there one year. Rosie McGee's been there. Roni Stanley. Um, others, uh, but the presenters are usually either academics or what we call in that group independent scholars. Some of them are film producers, novelists, um, or just people who uh, are good observers of the phenomenon and have something to say about it. So a lot of people who present at the conference aren't paid to do scholarship or creative activity, but do it because of their love of the dead. And uh, we think of ourselves as transdisciplinary. Uh, we, we share what we know and we share our perspectives. And um, I like to think that just as the dead's music uh, was improvisational, we do improvisational scholarship. And after every meeting, um, 
uh, we know more than we knew before, and we never go back to the same level we started at. And very, our approach to scholarship is very much informed by what we learned from the dead's approach to music. And uh, uh, that's my subgroup of deadheads. Well, I can't wait to get a degree in that. Well, what are you working on now, uh, Rebecca? Well, um, at the, at, when I began my career, I had three areas of research, aging, friendship, and then I added on fans of the Grateful Dead. And uh, those three things have merged into one. Uh, I do uh, coordinate a, a gerontology program at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Uh, and so aging is my job. And uh, it's fairly convenient that the crowd I studied when I was younger has grown old (laughs) because it gives me an opportunity to study aging music fans, specifically deadheads. Um, I have some young collaborators, Amy Ernstes, Kelly Lucy, and most recently Justin Harmon, uh, who've been helping me write about aging deadheads. Uh, And uh, I've also... um, uh, a couple of years ago, I taught a music and aging class, which I'm hoping uh, to teach again. Uh, and uh, so that's what I've been up to recently. Well, we look forward to seeing more of this. Uh, Dr. Rebecca Adams, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for being a part of our podcast here on uh, Long Strange Trip. And uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. It was- a lot of fun and Jerry would like that right <laughs> that's right weird fun Sweet change. She lost his buckle, you know she is the same.